please be seated. Well, happy Palm Sunday. Did you know that it was Palm Sunday today? Yeah, most of us are like, I don't know, what, what is Palm Sunday? And, and maybe for you, like, when I say that, uh, it brings back some childhood memories of little branches. It did for me, where we would take these things, and man, if you got a good one, you could whip your friend with it and, like, draw blood, right? <laughs> no, am I the only one? Our friends? My friends are the only ones that did that. Yeah, we get these little palm branches or whatever, we wave them at church. You remember that? You kind of remember that, right? That's kind of what Palm Sunday looks like to us. Um, and here, here's the thing. Um, I intentionally told our, like, our children's ministry and stuff, they were wondering, like, are we going to do like the palm branches, have the kids, and I'm like, oh, no, let's not do that. And here's why. Because Palm Sunday is about way more than palm branches. It actually has more to do with fig trees and mountains. I know, you're like, this man completely lost his mind, Right? Yeah, no, it really is. It, we, as we've been going through the, uh, our message here, it's called Jesus. Um, we've been looking at Jesus through the lens of Matthew. And man, Matthew is giving us a perspective of how he's seeing that Jesus is this legitimate king of Israel, and he's coming in and he's teaching people. Um, and now we've come to a place where Jesus is going to be entering into Jerusalem, the holy city. Right? And we know the story a little bit. I'm going to do a 30,000-foot view of this whole thing we're going to look at. Okay, Matthew chapter 21, we're going to look at it. He goes into the, the, the holy city on a donkey, right? Palm branches. There's the palm branches, right? And then he goes into the temple, and he raises a ruckus. He's throwing things around. We're like, well, we don't know what to do with this Jesus. Uh, and then after that, uh, he comes in. He's, there's, this, there's this fig tree, and he tells it to wither up, and it does. I don't even know. What are we talking about, right? It's crazy, the whole story. But I want us to grab not the palm branches idea that we have of growing up. I want to give us the context that the Jewish people and Jesus' day and the imagery that they would have as they are seeing all this unfold in that day, okay? That, that 24-hour period, what would they be experiencing? And they would not be experiencing and focus so much on the palm branches, although it would be very important for them. They'd be focusing on fig trees and mountains. Okay, here we go. I'm going to show you what I mean. Uh, so Matthew chapter uh, 21, starting in verse 1. In fact, we're just going to camp out here for a second. This gives us some imagery. All right? Um, and so I want you to kind of put your imagination hats on and just try to picture some things. Here's what it says. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Now, I'll just stop there and think. You see, I highlighted a few things here because this is imagery that they would have. Jerusalem, this is a holy city. And um, as they're approaching that, uh, they might be coming up over a hill and then come down to a valley, and then they would approach back up a hill. Um, Jerusalem set up on a hill here, and the temple is on the top of that. And I say hill. They might have seen it as a mountain. That idea, think like maybe Mount Cato type of thing, right? It's not a mountain. It's not a mountain. Like Anybody that's uh, lived out in Colorado or in the Rockies area, they'd be like, what? That's a maybe a foothill, right? So, uh, or if you skied or whatever. So anyway, but we think about it, and they, th these mountain things are important to their mindset. So I want us to get into their thinking. Um, on a mountaintop with a lush garden, and a river flowing out of that garden, right? 
It's, it's, the, it's the Garden of Eden, sitting on a mountain. It's where God dwells. Now, uh, we, we have a little picture here of um, the Jerusalem. This would be the viewpoint from the Mount of Olives. Um, this is more modern day because you see the Dome of the Rock in the middle there. It's not a great picture, but you can kind of see that. The point is that they're up on this one mount, <laughs> mountain. They're going to go down through the valley, and they come back up another hill, a uh, mountain, to the, where the temple will be, okay? Um, reason why that's important is because the temple in Jesus' day has all this imagery of lush gardens, fruit trees, fig trees, pomegranate trees, all of that stuff there, which, why did I highlight this weird word that I pronounced wrong, right? You're looking at it saying, that's Bethphage. It's not Bethphage. In fact, that almost sounds like a swear word. How dare you, right? Yeah, it, it means house of figs. There's a place there that is so fruitful with figs, it's just this house of figs. And the house of figs idea is going to play out as we go on, okay? So we have a mountain with a lush garden on top, right, the temple, and we've got this idea of fruitfulness with this house of figs. Okay, we need to picture ourselves and set ourselves there. You got that imagery? Okay, set your palm branches down and just picture this. Okay, now we're going to move forward. Move forward in the story. This will be more familiar to you, and you'll not see that I've lost my mind or anything. Verse 2, Jesus is speaking. Go into the village over there. Which village? The house of figs, okay? Go into the village over there. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs them. And, they, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill a prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, people of the mountain, right? Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. There's an imagery there of a king that's going to come into Jerusalem. When they're expecting a king, what kind of king might they be expecting? You got these pesky foreigners, right? These Romans that have taken over their land and they're suppressing them and they're kind of let them do a few things. But man, when the king comes, this is our land again, right? Get rid of them. But this king is coming in differently, isn't he? He's coming in differently. He's coming in humbly and gently on a donkey, on a donkey's colt, okay? So there's some imagery that's going on there for them. Now, uh, you get the palm branches seen and all that, and what are the people singing uh, at this time? They're seeing that, yeah, Jesus is this king coming in, right? But they're singing something, and this is really important to pay attention to. Uh, verse 9, we're just going to jump right to verse 9. Jesus was in the center of this pr procession. All the people around him were shouting, and here's what they're shouting. Praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. Okay, praise God there is an unfortunate translation. <laughs> um, the New Living Translation wants to give you the idea of it. The idea is that it was a praise type of thing. But originally, it started out as a cry for help. It's not praise God, it's save us. We're in deep, deep trouble here. Save us, oh God, save us. And who is to save us? Son of David, that's king language. King is to come and save us. Oh, save us. Save us now. And it turned into this song of praise. Save us now, okay? So remember this 
Okay, do you have some of the imagery still? You've got the imagery going up to the mountain. He's in this procession. Palm branches are waving. They're saying, save us, save us now. All this king language, okay? Now, their picture of a king might be very different than God's picture of a king. Did you know that God actually laid out some guidelines for what a king was supposed to be like for the Israelites? It was in Deuteronomy 17. You can read it there if you want to. It's verses 14 through 20, but I'm just going to go through it. I'm just going to show you what the three, three main like guidelines are, okay? First one is that this is to be an Israelite of God's choosing. Really important that God would pick someone from their tribes, but he would handpick them. Not them picking them, like, I don't know, this guy looks really good, let's have him do it. He's pretty strong and buff and tall and, you know, he's good with a sword or something. Nope, God is going to pick your king, okay? So God handpicks the king. Uh, second thing about this is that that king is not to amass a big army um, or wives, many wives, you know, don't be collecting people like property, and also a lot of wealth for themselves, okay? So they're not to do that. Does, does this sound like a real powerful king? If this king can't have a big army or lots of money and show off all of his property like wives and all of that or make alliances with other kings with all these wives or some, something like that, this all of a sudden doesn't seem to be real powerful. So what's this king to do? Brings us to the third thing. This king is to make a copy of their Torah, their law, the, the, their Bible, right? To make a copy of it, hand write it out for themselves and to study it and meditate on it daily. Yeah, that's, this guy should probably be riding a donkey, not a powerful war horse or anything, right? So you see the picture of it. Now, let's just think, is there, is there someone in the Bible that fits all of these? What about Jesus being a king? Was he an Israelite that God chose? Yeah, if you've been reading through Matthew, you've seen that a couple times at least that, that God has said, hey, this is, this is my son. I'm pleased with him, right? He's choosing Jesus. Uh, what about um, an army? Jesus have a big army he amassed? Nope, ragtag group of people, fishermen and stuff, right? Tax collectors, all, all kinds of strange people. They shouldn't be together, but they are, right? That's, that's his people. Uh, many wives, how many wives did Jesus have? Yeah, yeah, zero wives. Um, what about wealth? A lot of wealth, Jesus, pretty wealthy. No, I mean, he had to send out one of his disciples to go fishing to pay his taxes, right? Right, some kind of miracle, draw a coin so you can pay that. Um, how about making a copy of the Torah and meditating on day in and day out? Jesus knew the Torah. Right? He knew the law inside and outside. He studied it so much he could see himself in it and found his, who he truly is, God's son, through studying that and then was able to teach other people this perspective God wanted them to have about God's kingdom. Sermon on the Mount. Did we go through that? If not, I'll spend another four weeks or six weeks going through that, right? We went through this, this teaching that he gave about it. So Jesus fulfills all of these things. I'm saying this just to hammer in the point that Jesus is the king. The people are saying it, but Jesus is showing it. He's showing that he is the king that's fulfilling all the guidelines of the king, and he's coming in humbly on this donkey, going up to where? to the mountain where there's a lush garden called the temple, right? All this imagery. Let's, let's lock that in, okay? Lock that in. Um, now, Jesus is going to now go into the temple and do something. So he's going to go into this garden space, 
right, where, where God is said to dwell. That's God's space, and humans can enter into it, but it's a lush garden, all of that, that imagery. He's going to go into there, and um, he's not happy what he sees, right? This is where we get uncomfortable with Jesus. They're like, Jesus, just calm down. Maybe you've had too much caffeine. I'm not sure, but you're getting bent out of shape about things, okay? So let's go in and see what Jesus has to say. Now, he's, he's doing something on purpose. Here it is, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So did I emphasize something there, right? I em emphasized something there, didn't I? My temple will be called a house of prayer. Where was he coming from? Bethphage called a house of figs. But this space, this is not a house of figs or pomegranates and things that you see on the walls. This is a house of prayer. This is a, this is a place that you come to connect with God. You come to be with God and learn and be healed and all of this stuff. So he's teaching them that they're taking this place for granted. And he's using something that you know, from his own writings down, right? He wrote out the, the Bible for himself and studied it, and he uses one of those things that a prophet stood in that very same spot and said the very same words to a group of people that were taking the temple for granted. They thought it would always be there, that God surely wouldn't allow the Babylonians to come in and destroy his garden on top of this mountain, his house, the place that he would dwell. And that's, but that's exactly what happened. The Babylonians came in. They thought it would always be there. No matter what had happened, God would protect it. And God said, it's gone. Now what are you going to do? You've been putting too much focus in on this mountain space in the wrong way. It has not been a house of prayer. It's just a den of thieves. Okay? Yeah? All right. So we have this imagery. But this is Jesus... Jesus is making a point here, okay? He's trying to get their attention to teach them something, and this teaching is going to do something. This is the type of king that Jesus is, okay? So he's teaching them something, because notice in verse 14 what he does. The blind and the lame came to him where? In the temple. But who did they come to? They came to him in this temple, in this garden space, the place where God dwells, right? And he healed them. He made them well. So some people are picking up on Jesus' teaching and they're coming to him and he makes them well. He heals them. But what about some other people that are there? Some religious leaders, verse 15. The leading priests, right? It's kind of their job to heal people and take care of them and offer prayers and things like that. And teachers of religious law. These are the Bible nerds, right? The ones that also make a copy for themselves and they teach out of it, okay? So these two groups of people. Uh, they saw these wonderful miracles and heard the children in the temple shouting. What are they shouting? The same thing that they were shouting, right, along as he was coming in. Do you hear it again? Save us. Save us, O son of David. Save us now. Okay, do you hear it for the second time? These children are saying it. And what do the, the leaders say? They're, they're angry and say, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus responds. I love this. This is great. Yep. Yep, I hear it. I hear it. 
And by the way, have you ever read your Bible? That's what he says. Look at, haven't you ever read the scriptures? You guys that are expert in the scriptures, you should read it. It's really good stuff, right? Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise, to call out to you in their need, in their time of desperation. Save us. Save us now, O son of David. Isn't this cool? I've been, I, I don't know. I'm having a good time with this. Are you with me so far? Right? So there's a, all of this imagery is coming into the play. Right? Sure. The king is coming in. And who is this king? Jesus is the king. But Jesus is the king that does what? Jesus is the king that teaches and heals. And as I sit and I think about this, I'm like, not only does Jesus teach and heal, it's through his teaching that he heals. Isn't that kind of fascinating? This is just like eye-opening to me. As I sit and try to get the imagery and the way that they would have received this, it's more than just palm branches. It's an important part of it. But what about the fruitfulness? What about the fruitfulness that's supposed to happen on this mountain? This mountain where God dwells in this lush garden. Well, that's where the final piece comes into play here. And I know that um, it took, took me some time to put it all together, and I needed some help from a professor, Professor Tim Mackey. Uh, he helped me to see this in the right way as we put these themes together, right? All of these things going together, but it ties it all off. So let's, let's take a look at this last section um, and remember the themes, okay? Verse 18, in the morning, so we're still part of that 24-hour period, in the morning, as Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, right? He's heading back down maybe the mountain olives and then back up to the Temple Mount, okay? As he was returning to Jerusalem, he was hungry, and he noticed a fig tree. Told you it's about fig trees. Fig trees beside the road. He went over to see if there were any figs, but there were only leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the fig tree withered up. The disciples were amazed when they saw this and asked, how did the fig tree wither up so quickly? Then Jesus told them, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, which mountain? Which mountain are they, are they standing in front of? They're right there. The temple mountain. The temple, the temple is there. You can say to this mountain, what? Be thrown into the sea. Be thrown into the sea and have it. Now, just stop here for a second, okay? You can say to this thing that is there, it's supposed to be this place of prayer, a place of fruitfulness, a way of connecting with God, that you can take that thing, the very fabric of your life, the thing that you trust in the most, that will always be there because that's where God dwells, you can take that and cast it into the sea. Do you know what the sea represents? Here's a freebie. Chaos. Throw it into the chaos. It's not there anymore. Let it be swallowed back up. Are you kidding me? That's a, that's a thing that our whole life, this whole story has been surrounded and pointing to this temple, this mountain where God dwells, and you're just going to say, take, get rid of it? Do you think maybe Jesus is preparing them for something? 
Remember, he's just talking to the disciples here on their way back. Do you think maybe he's preparing them that maybe if they destroy this temple, that in three days, maybe, find it interesting that all of a sudden that thing that they put all of their hopes and their focus on and their trust in, they can just tell it to be thrown out. And what will happen? It'll happen, right? But then look at what he tells them that they can do. This is, this is fun for me, okay? He says, he says this in verse 22, okay? You can pray for anything, and if you have faith, you will receive it. Think about it. Where did they go for prayer? Where's that temple now? Thrown in the sea. Where are they praying? Who are they standing in front of? Who's standing in front of them? The king. The king that teaches and heals. This king. This is the king to trust in. That's who this Jesus is. All right? Okay? Do you see it now? And here's the thing. They take it so for granted that that thing's going to be there all the time for them. But what if it's not? What if, what if even Jesus, he dies? Can they still trust in him? Can they still pray? Not in the house of prayer anymore. Can they just pray? And it will happen. What would they pray? What do you think they would pray? We've heard this refrain twice now, and it shows up here very subtly. Oh, save us. Oh, save us, son of David. Oh, save us, King Jesus. Rescue us. Rescue us now. You can pray that, and if you trust, if you have faith, it'll happen. Come on. Isn't this cool? So here's, here's where I, I just kind of grab my mind around this. It made me question, what is it that I put my trust in the most? And if anything has tested that more, it's been this last year. Everything that's been taken away or turned upside down or thrown into chaos, it just revealed to me like, man, I really have been trusting in that. Finances? Stock market? Right? I hope that it's going to be good because Man, if it's not, my life, family, and getting together and talking with them and being connected, what if that gets thrown into chaos? Wow. Been trusting in that. Been relying on that. Going to a place of work, having work to go to, that's a challenge for us, is it not? How about health? How about our own healthiness, right? Like we just trust in that so much or we have so many doubts about it. We just trust that the healthcare system is going to work for us when it's there. And if anybody, if anybody knows, you've got some chronic illness, cancer, something like that, and like you go and they can't figure it out, they can't figure it out, they can't figure it out, your world is thrown into chaos, Right? And now, maybe we have some hope in what's going to happen. What if that gets thrown into chaos? Can we throw it into chaos? Can we throw it out to the sea and be like, Jesus, you are my king. Jesus, you are the king that teaches and king that heals. Can we say, Jesus, I trust in you above all of this other stuff. 
This is where I landed with this as I processed it. I share it with you, and I humbly offer you a way to continue to process this. Palm Sunday, Big Tree Sunday, Mountain Sunday, I don't know. Palm Sunday has a better ring to it, right? But I offer something to you so that you can continue to walk through Palm Sunday in a way of uh, applying it into your life. And this is just what I do, and I just offer it to you. So maybe it will work. I want to explain it. I'll show you what it is. I'll explain it. It's just a prayer that is threefold that goes through Palm Sunday, okay? The first part of the prayer is just this. Jesus, you are the king of my life. Because let's be honest, who likes to rule our life? We like to rule our life. So let's just start with going like, yeah, Jesus, you are the king of my life, okay? The second part of the prayer and the second part of Palm Sunday is King Jesus, teach me and heal me. King Jesus, why? Because we have to remind ourselves that he's the king and we're not the king, right? So King Jesus, teach me and heal me, right? It's through his teaching that we are healed. Uh, King Jesus, the third part of this, King Jesus, I trust you above all things. So if there's nothing else you've taken away from any of the message, if you can get to a place where you're just like, King Jesus, my life is complete chaos right now. I just trust you above all the other things I could trust in. That would be okay with me. So King Jesus, I trust you above all things. I offer that to you, and I can't offer that to you without actually praying it with you. So if you want to, go ahead and do that. Uh, Close your eyes now. I'm just going to pray through this. Jesus, you are the king of my life. King Jesus, teach me and heal me. King Jesus, I trust you above all things. Continue above all things. Amen.